0: Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com historyextra History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com historyextra History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
2: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card
3: During this difficult time, we want to make it as easy as possible for our readers to get their copy of BBC History magazine or BBC History Revealed. So for the next few months, we'll deliver your favourite magazine direct to your door with no delivery charge. From today, you can save up to 70% off the shop price and subscribe from just £9.99. That's just £1.66 per issue. There's never been a better time to get your favourite history magazine delivered direct to your home. To take advantage of this unmissable offer, please visit www.bysubscriptions.com forward slash history extra and choose your magazine. Don't forget, all of our magazines are also available digitally on your mobile or tablet device. Visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash history extra for more information. We look forward to welcoming you. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. Later this year, a few months after its original release date, the latest instalment of the James Bond franchise, No Time to Die, is set to be released in cinemas. On today's episode, we'll hear from the author Henry Hemming, who explored the real-life inspirations behind the lead characters in Fleming's spy series in the April issue of BBC History magazine. Ahead of the announcement that the film would be delayed, he met up with our deputy digital editor, Eleanor Evans, to talk about the staggering success of the fictional spy.
4: Well, thanks so much for joining us again on the History Extra podcast. Pleasure. So you've joined us before talking about some real-life spies, uh, real-life spy masters. Mm -hmm. Uh, Today we're talking about uh, probably the world's most famous spy, but one who's fictional. So could we start by perhaps looking at Ian Fleming's James Bond? When did he first come onto the scene?
1: So the first James Bond book was written in 1952, and um, it's been written about a lot, but Ian Fleming went for a swim by Night, his house in Jamaica, and then sat down in front of a battered Royale typewriter and began to write. And, and he almost didn't stop for the next two weeks. Two weeks later, he had Casino Royale finished, and that's the rest is history, you could say. The, um, the success was, um, I think it, it surprised him as much as anyone else. He didn't think it would do quite as well as it did. Um, but the success is phenomenal. I mean, there is, the film franchise has generated $7 billion to date. And I think until very recently, it was the largest film franchise in history. More than 100 million copies of the books have been sold worldwide and they continue to sell like hotcakes. And I, mean, I think as someone who writes about spies... It's fascinating to try and work out what it is about this particular spy, because there are lots of other spies who've been invented or real spies have been written about, but this is the one who endures more than anyone else. And, um, and the thing that also intrigues me about this, I remember having a conversation once with, um, with a retired intelligence officer who was talking about what it meant to work in British intelligence during the late 20th century. And he was saying that, funny enough, two people, made a big difference to his work were two people who never existed, Smiley and Bond. And, uh, and I was really intrigued by this. So he says Smiley was important because the success of Smiley made a prospective agent imagine that this spymaster, by the person I was talking to, had hidden debts. And even when he was just lost for thought, he was probably having an emotional <laughs> response to something, he was making, that he had a hinterland that there was more going on than might otherwise be the case. But he also, he talked about Bond as, as obviously being someone who made the idea of being a spy more attractive because he presents a, a very glamorous, fictionalised version of the reality of espionage and for a lot of people that, um, that adds to the romance and the glamour.
4: Mm-hmm. And I think Ian Fleming is, is almost just as fascinating as Bond. As you say, the success is staggering. How did his life inform this character?
1: I mean, a lot of it is wish-fulfillment. I mean, it's not autobiographical. Uh, Bond, when he shares certain characteristics with Fleming, uh, they look reasonably similar. They both went to Eton for a bit. They both um, lost their fathers early on in life. Um, They both uh, were acting commanders in the Royal Naval um, Reserve. But at the same time, Fleming himself was not a man of action in the way that Bond emphatically is. And you get a sense of, I mean, during the war, Fleming was, um, was mostly behind a desk, and he was involved in, um, in setting up and helping to run one particular commander unit, 30 assault unit. And um, it was the people he met there who played a large part in inspiring this character, James Bond. And you can imagine part of him wanted to be doing that, wanted to be out in the field, but I think also recognised that that wasn't him. He wasn't good enough and he he's very honest about this in all the interviews he gives um, after the success of Bond becomes evident saying that you know this is someone who I don't really like this Bond character but he's part of me wants to be part of him if that makes sense uh but the thing that I found really interesting writing this piece about Bond was um was understanding just the lengths Fleming goes to to not pin this character down he doesn't tell you too much and uh, John Le Carré calls him the ultimate prostitute, Bond, not Fleming, in the sense you can project onto him what you want to find there, and, uh, and I mean every detail there suggests this. Even the name, the name James Bond, does not immediately place him socially. That could he can, could come from anywhere. It's not James Quillington Smythe or <laughs> something like that. And even his hobbies and interests. You don't hear about james bond going off hunting shooting fishing he's into fast cars he's into gambling these are all tastes that you can acquire so anyone can imagine themselves to be bond and i think that's why you have this um fascinating thing whereby the character um, is such a part of a british national identity that the choice of the actor who's going to play him becomes a subject of nationwide debate which you just don't get with any other imaginary character which tells you about just I mean how kind of rooted he is in the way we see ourselves as people living in Britain Um, but also the extent to which you need to basically to see something of yourself in this character and if you feel the actor doesn't do that then you say so. Mm -hmm.
4: If we do go to the man himself then you already talked about how um, Ian Fleming's uh, the parallels made with Fleming might be somewhat wish-fulfilling. Um, but if we look at some real-life figures who may have inspired uh, Bond, who, who do you think uh, is on that list?
1: So one of them is someone I've written about a lot in my last book, *A Man in New York. And that's uh, Bill Stevenson, who was someone Fleming was, was impressed by and uh, who worked under briefly... Uh, during the Second World War, when he went out to America, Stevenson was the MI6 head of station in New York. And there was something about him that Fleming was was intrigued by. And um, and he made lots of notes about exactly what he he did and said. He even noted down how um, Stevenson liked to make his martini, which was uh, shaken, not stirred, which is the the birth of that particular detail. Um, And and Fleming later said Stevenson is, is not so much... Bond, because Bond is an imaginary figure. Stevenson is the real thing. Uh, but he was part of it. Some of the other characters um, include his brother, Peter Fleming, who was a dashing man of action. Um, somebody called Patrick, I don't know how to say this, but Dalzell Job. It might be one of these funny names where it's sort of Dalil or who knows. Um, you uh, also have Conrad O'Brien for French. And that's not a stateroom developed. That is uh, spelled like that. Two f's at the beginning of French. Um, again, that takes us back to this idea. That's very much not the kind of name he wanted Bond to actually have. But this was someone who was a commando figure, who was fearless, who was tough, who was known for his exploits during the war. And these are the kinds of people who inspired Fleming. I mean, he described Bond as being a, a blunt instrument in the hands of the government. Someone who would follow orders and, and was quite tough quite almost thuggish and um and a lot of these characters had elements of that
4: uh, you mentioned the name you've mentioned it a, a couple of times it being so um able to project any identity you want can we talk about where that came from
1: yeah so um the actual name james bond we think i mean fleming um told various stories about exactly where it came from but one of them was that it comes from the, um, the American ornithologist, James Bond, who wrote A Field Guide to uh, Birds of the West Indies, I think it's called. And Ian Fleming was, um, was a keen bird watcher himself, as well as someone who loved being in what was known as the West Indies. And so he, he knew this book, he knew this name, it obviously resonated with him in, in some way. and uh, But at the same time, there's no actual similarity between the character of this ornithologist and... James Bond himself. I mean, the one small sort of inside joke, perhaps, is, uh, is that at some point in the mid-20th century, the name Birdwatcher was slang for spy within the world of intelligence. So maybe that was um, Fleming sort of, yeah, trying to make a joke that others in his world would understand.
4: Right. A little nod, perhaps.
1: Yeah.
4: Um, so um, before we go back, perhaps, to Ian Fleming and, and a bit more about his career, um, your piece in, in BBC History magazine, your recent piece, looks as well at the, the iconic cast that also has come... To represent so much of the Bond franchise, um, Miss Moneypenny or the villains. Um, can we talk about some of the parallels you found with the real people who would have inspired the people around Bond?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, the first character to talk about is M, the um, the iconic M, Bond's spy master. Who, um, I mean, originally when you when you go into it, it's pretty clear that the main inspiration. is um, is Fleming's boss during the Second World War, Admiral John Godfrey, who uh, who was in naval intelligence. And uh, and Fleming was his aide for for two years. But Godfrey was never known as M. And um, and where it becomes more interesting is, is why Fleming chose this particular letter of the alphabet. So James Bond's nominal boss would have been a guy called C, the head of SIS, And at the same time, he didn't want to reveal too much about SIS, so he chose a different letter. Why did he go for M? There was um, Colonel Gubbins, a guy in in SOE, who occasionally signed off some of his letters as M. But um, someone else who I know a certain amount about because I've written about him um, in one of my other books, Maxwell Knight, was also known as M. And he, I would argue, was the best known M in the secret world at that time. He'd spent 30 years running M section. All of his agents were called M-A, M-B, M-C, and so on. And uh, so he, I imagine, helped to inspire this choice of, uh, of the letter M. But then there's um, there's one other person who may have inspired it, and that's Ian Fleming's mother, who signed her, her letters M, was known to her children as M, but also fulfilled an almost similar role to M, as to James Bond, as... Uh, in terms of how she was with, with Ian Fleming himself. So during the 1930s, Ian Fleming was bouncing between different jobs and um, schools and institutions. But most of these moves were engineered by his mother, who doted upon him. He was uh, the much-loved second son in the family. And you can almost imagine him going in to see her every couple of years as this new departure um, began, um, to find out what his next mission would be where he was going to, whether he was going to Switzerland or whether he was going to Moscow or or what have you. And so I think there is a nice parallel there. So I think his mother certainly played a part in uh, in inspiring the name M. Uh, You've talked about Miss Moneypenny. There are a couple of candidates there, but there's no obvious candidate. And I think in terms of the the style of that relationship, it's a very innuendo, heavy, flirtatious, all the evidence suggests Fleming just did not have that with the people who are meant to have inspired Moneypenny. Uh, there's also Q. Uh, and there is um, a real person who ran something called Q branch and was called Charles Fraser Smith. And he, during the Second World War, ran this, uh, this department, which invented incredible gadgets that uh, people working for SOE or commando units, such as the one Fleming was involved in, would go to to get these gadgets before they went into occupied Europe. And usually these were everyday objects that had some kind of weapon or tool hidden inside them, such as a, uh, invisible inks. There was garlic-flavoured chocolate for British agents heading to France, which <laughs> I have all sorts of problems with. This was to try and make them blend in with the local population. I mean, this suggests that French people were sort of eating garlic non-stop, which I don't think they were at the time, but also garlic-flavoured chocolate. That's, that's never going to work. Another one, which I read about, and again I've got problems with, is the, um, a shoestring that was also a garrote. Because if you wear a garrote for a shoestring, it's not really going to work as a shoestring. Anyway, this is, um, legend has it, these are some of the things that the real Q branch produced. And Fleming knew all about this. He described a Q branch in the books. He didn't actually describe a Q in the books. But he was involved in in helping to to oversee the scripting of the films. And um, I'm sure he played a part in, in the birth of that character on screen.
3: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
1: There's absolutely no ambiguity in the books about who is right and who is wrong. Bond is right and the people up against him are wrong.
0: Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
2: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply.
0: eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it.
4: talk about the villains then because I mean it seems from what your article lays out that it is a bit of a case of be careful or you'll end up in my novel
1: definitely yeah there's um no I mean all of them pretty much um have in some way annoyed Fleming and uh, and he's got his revenge so two of them Blofeld and, and Scaramanga um legend has it that uh, that he'd he'd known a guy called Scaramanga at school and had got into various fights with him but that wasn't enough it was later when his nephew, a guy called Nicol Fleming, um, mentioned to his uncle, and this is around the time Fleming was beginning to write, I think, um, the second and third on books, that he was being bullied. He was being bullied at school by two particular prefects. One was called Blofeld and one was called Scaramanga. And um, Fleming obviously decided enough was enough. <laughs> he was going to, to get his revenge. I mean, in terms of the impact that has on those people and their descendants, there's something almost quite unfair and... and not wicked about it. I mean, did he know just how well the books were going to do at the time? I don't know. Maybe he thought it was fun. But, yeah, those people have lived with it. Every time they, I don't know, book a table at a restaurant, there's, uh, <laughs> it's going to come up. Um, Goldfinger, that was another one. Uh, the Bond villain, Auric Goldfinger, was, um, was very much inspired by Erno Goldfinger, who was the, um, the modernist architect. Ian Fleming did not like his buildings, Um, plenty of people in London did not none of them had the kind of reach that Fleming did and uh, and Goldfinger tried to take him to court he um, he tried to sue him tried to halt the publication of the book I think at one point Fleming suggested he would rename Goldfinger as Gold Prick but (laughs) the publisher thought that was just going to make things worse and I think there was some kind of compromise where they were going to sort of downplay the name Goldfinger in the publicity Um, but essentially yeah it was unchanged and um, I think Goldfinger was furious for um, for the rest of his life about that. And uh, I think Hugo Drax was another one who um, got on the wrong side of him at some point.
4: So if we can go back to Fleming then, you already mentioned how um, he perceived Bond as a man of action, whereas his, his realities as working um, within these organisations were somewhat different. Mm. Can you give us a bit of insight into what Fleming's activities would have been like? You know, what, what kind of operations he would have been involved in?
1: Yes, yeah, so a lot of the time he was coming up with ideas for his boss, um, Admiral John Godfrey. He was coming up with deception plans. He was thinking of ways to bamboozle the Germans. He was also involved in the creation of this commando unit that I mentioned earlier, 30 assault units or 30 AU. And, um, and this was under the aegis of naval intelligence. And this was, as the word commando suggests, it would carry out special operations, um, he would often go in advance of, of the main military force and um, and so that's where he he encountered so many of these people who helped to inspire this uh, this James Bond character but so a lot of it was was planning planning and observing and writing reports and writing out papers and also ever so slightly um looking after this character not quite M but Admiral John Godfrey who um was who sometimes difficult to so he was a liaison between Godfrey and other people so a lot of it was just quite boring communication and uh, smoothing things over when Godfrey uh, got cross with people.
4: Um, what do you think was it about 1950 society that made this spy such a, such a phenomenon?
1: Moral clarity. He's, um, there's absolutely no ambiguity in the books about who is right and who is wrong. Bond is right and the people up against him are wrong. And at the same time, he... Um, He's not quite infallible, but he, um, he's very good at what he does. There is a prowess. There is um, yeah, a success. He, he exudes success as well as vigour and all of these other things. And, of course, at the time, during at this moment of British imperial decline, the 1950s, this is, um, that was what a lot of people wanted to read. But what's so intriguing is that it's a global phenomenon. It's not just people in Britain who are kind of getting off on this. It's, um, it's all over the world, people are enjoying this um, this idea. And there's something else that goes on, where it's almost what other people around the world want to, to see of Britain and Britishness. And uh, it sort of fills this, this British stereotype that some people um, around the world have a kind of flattering, glamorous stereotype, but a stereotype nonetheless. So it works in both ways. So the people within this... this um, Cartoonish figure, uh, they like it. We like it, and uh, people outside enjoy looking at it. So it's um you know, it's, it's a really interesting phenomenon.
4: I, I'm assuming that you're you're a fan of the James Bond books, or as a historian, you, you use them as a.
1: I like them. <laughs> I I mean, if I had to, if I was sitting down tonight and I wanted to read a book about spies, I'd probably turn to a Le Carre book. If I could just choose one on a whim, I, I adore almost everything that Le Carre has written, certainly early Le Carre. So, I, I mean, I like, I like Ian Fleming, and, uh, and I, I sort of, yeah, I enjoy the, the complexity of, uh, of Le Carre a tiny bit more, but it also, yeah, I love... What I like about the Fleming books is that they, they do precisely what they set out to, to do, and they, um, they achieve it successfully. I think the, the worst way to criticise something is to criticise it for not doing something it never tried to do, and I think he perfectly executes what he's tried to do.
4: Mm -hmm. Reading it with your historian's hat on, it's perhaps, is it a little bit confronting or is it you just saying, no, it's designed to entertain?
1: It's designed to entertain. I mean, yeah, there are, from a historian's point of view, there's, I think there's plenty to pick up on. I think it's, um, I mean, maybe the best thing you can say about it from a historical point of view is that having someone like Fleming who'd lived through the Second World War Who'd, um, who'd lived through the world of intelligence who sort of was frustrated in some ways by what he had and hadn 't done and by the sometimes sort of um, complex nature of what he was doing this was the, this was sort of the opposite this is where everything was clear and certain and I think if anything it tells you about what it was like to live in that world where you almost you long for it to be clear and certain for the enemies just to be baddies and uh, and your agent to do all the right things all the time
4: mm-hmm. So if that that moral certainty is more clear and certainly the earlier when it, when he first came on the scene, mm-hmm. I, I think it's probably fair to say that later depictions of Bond have maybe been a bit more morally ambiguous. Yes. Um, what do you think? Why 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 do you think that change had to come about, or did it? And why do you think that kind of still fuels this real fascination with him today? Why are movies still being made?
1: I think you're absolutely right because they have they've taken on board some of the things that happen in the world of of how he writes about spies. And I think Le Carre plays a big part in that. And many people have written about this, how Le Carre changes the genre by introducing a, a more ambiguous sense of what's right and what's wrong. And um, what I love about more recent films is that they really embrace that. I mean, Casino Royale, the film, was, um, was fantastic. That's one of my favourite, favourite films. And um, and because you do get a sense of this, this uncertainty and, you know, any film that... Um, that really grips you and, and absolutely, yeah, entertains you is one in which the character, the central character, has some kind of, some kind of flaw, something they have to, to get over. And I think the, um, the more recent films definitely get that. And hopefully the new one will as well.
3: That was Henry Hemming. Henry is the author of six non-fiction books, including Our Man in New York, which was published by Quirkus in the UK and is available now. You can also listen to Henry discuss the real spymasters, Bill Stevenson and Maxwell Knight, on two previous episodes of the History Extra podcast. You can find both at historyextra.com forward slash podcast. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us next on Wednesday, when Linda Porter will be discussing the mistresses of Charles II.